I'm very thankful to Pastor Archie for his warm welcome to me and my family, and very grateful to Pastor Paul Patrick for giving me this uh, privilege of sharing the Word of God with you. And so I invite you to hear the opening paragraph of the first letter of John the Apostle. What was from the beginning, what we have heard, what we have seen with our eyes, what we perceived and our hands touched concerning the word, the life. And the life appeared, and we have seen and testify and declare to you the eternal life who was with the Father and appeared to us. What we have seen and heard, we also declare to you, so that you also may have fellowship with us. And our fellowship is also with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things so that your joy may be full. I invite you to pray with me a prayer for illumination. And I will use an ancient prayer over a thousand years old, a prayer offered to the Holy Spirit for his living presence among us. Heavenly King, Comforter, Spirit of Truth, you who are in all places and who fill all things, the treasury of good things, and the giver of life. Come, abide in us. Cleanse us from every stain and save our souls. In Jesus' holy name we pray. Let's center ourselves more deeply in this life-giving scripture. What was from the beginning, what we have heard, what we have seen with our eyes, what we perceived and our hands touched concerning the word, the life. And the life appeared, and we have seen and testify and declare to you the eternal life who was with the Father and appeared to us. What we have seen and heard, we also declare to you, so that you also may have fellowship with us, and our fellowship is also with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things so that your joy may be full. Who is this voice addressing us, uh, this plural pronoun, we, uh, behind the writing? I wonder if you heard 
echoes of the opening of the fourth gospel, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. Did anybody hear echoes of John chapter 1 as I was reading from the first letter of John? Let me share some of the echoes with you. The beginning, the Word who was with God, the Word who became flesh, whose glory was perceived. These echoes strongly suggest that the letter whose opening I read and the fourth gospel have one and the same human author. And according to ancient church tradition, this is none other than the Apostle John. The apostles were 12 Jews specially chosen by Jesus and privileged with the intimacy of his presence. And they were to be guardians, so to speak, of Jesus' narrative. And the Apostle John was not only one of the 12, he was one of Jesus' inner circle, one of Jesus' most intimate confidants, along with James and Peter. And as you transition into the rest of the letter, the we, the plural, becomes I, the first person, John writing in the first person. So I think the fact that he begins with the we, the plural pronoun, is showing that he's speaking on behalf of the apostles as, as a group, as a collective. He's speaking on behalf of those who had first-hand intimate knowledge of Christ. He's speaking from a standpoint of first-hand knowledge of Christ. And as we read his opening words, I, I wonder, is this emphasis on first-hand knowledge uh, perhaps provoking envy in some readers? The apostles, they heard the voice of Jesus, its tone. They saw his face. They looked into his eyes. John even mentions what our hands have touched. Now, every society has a conventional form of greeting for us, the, the handshake, or if you're like me, germophobic and still paranoid about COVID, the fist bump. Um, those with whom you're more intimately acquainted perhaps receive a hug. And John basically saying that we, the apostles, received the first century equivalent of a hug from Jesus Christ. First-hand knowledge. To illustrate the difference between first-hand knowledge and second-hand knowledge, I'd like to tell uh, an anecdote from uh, my own family. Um, when uh, Dawn and I were first married, before we had children, we decided to get a dog. We figured that a canine child might be a little bit easier to nurture than a human child. And the breed that we settled on was the Yorkshire Terrier, those little black and gold fellows that only grow to about 10 pounds. I figured that was quite enough for me to handle, never owned a dog before. And we found a, a Yorkshire Terrier breeder about half an hour from our house. And as you do with, with babies, you, we even picked out a name in advance. Uh, we decided to name him Dreyfus. 
And we called the breeder and said, do you have any Yorkshire puppies for sale? And she said, yes, we have a newborn male puppy, Yorkshire Terrier. We thought, perfect, Dreyfus, we're there. And a few days later, we drove out to the breeder and Dreyfus had been born and he was a tiny puppy, a few, a few, just a, a few weeks old. And his coat was black, shiny. He had almost like a gold beard. Um, you could hear him snore as he slept. But the most, most beautiful memory was he was so tiny, he would fit in the palm of your hand. You could hold the tiny puppy in the palm of your hand. And we had, my wife and I had this first-hand knowledge of Dreyfus, the puppy. Well, a few years later, our oldest daughter, Emma, was born. And when Emma was, I don't know, around seven years old, I narrated to her the story of, of, of my wife and I encountering Dreyfus for the first time. And I described his black and uh, gold fur, his little snore, and how he was so tiny he would fit in the palm of your hand. And seven-year-old Emma burst out, I wish I'd been alive to see that. I wish I'd been alive to see that. And I wonder if uh, Emma's uh, envy, um, not unholy envy, just uh, desire, I, I wonder if it parallels some, some reactions to hearing about the apostles seeing Jesus face to face, hearing his voice and touching Jesus, maybe receiving a hug from the Son of God. Well, if that's so, I invite you to listen closely to the next sentence of the letter, because John interrupts the flow of what's with a who. John communicates to us, he says, not just his first-hand experience of Christ, the what, but Christ himself. He communicates to us not just his own experience, but Christ himself, the eternal life, who was with the Father. And John testifies and declares Christ to us so that we, the reader, may enjoy communion with God the Father and with God the Son. John seems to be claiming that his letter can bring us into communion with God the Father and God the Son, that we can have the equivalent of first-hand knowledge of Jesus himself, even though we were not there with the apostles. This being the case, uh, the letter and the New Testament as a whole, it truly is a remarkable, unique book, uh, full of the presence of the living Christ. As Hebrews 4 verse 12 says, the word of God is 
living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. It's alive with the presence of the living Christ. A a, a Bible translator gave a a powerful illustration of, of his experience of the scripture as having living power and presence within it. Um, He said that his experience of translating from the Hebrew Old Testament and the Greek New Testament into English was like an electrician attempting to rewire a house with the mains still switched on, with the power supply still switched on. Uh, now, you know how Pastor Paul Patrick likes to tell home improvement stories. And <laughs> I don't know about you, but my takeaway from them is always, don't try this at home. <laughs> don't do it yourself. Hire a professional. And that is particularly the case in anything involving electricity. Do not attempt to rewire uh, your house yourself. A professional electrician can do it. And the first thing they're going to do is they're going to switch off the power at the mains. What if they forgot to do this? As the house would then be full of living power, electrical, um, and in attempting to rewire, one would of course get sparks and shocks from that electrical presence. And John's letter is full of the living presence of Christ. And John invites us through the portal of his letter into fellowship with God the Father and God the Son. So, his letter is an invitation to communion with God. His letter is an invitation to communion with God. So my question for us is, do we read the Bible in that way as an invitation to communion with God, as a portal, so to speak, to the living presence of God? Um, The reason I ask that question, um, I'm old enough to remember a world in which there were no personal computers. I'm not quite as old as Noah, but getting there. I remember a world in which there were no cell phones, there was no Wi-Fi, there was no internet. And to help old guys like me, sociologists say, old man, you must realize that nowadays we're living in the digital age. Uh, We're living in the information age, the age of information, in which access to information is the greatest privilege, and information is the most valuable commodity. And I think that in that environment, Are we perhaps tempted to read the Bible primarily as a source of information? You know, in the in life in general, uh, especially if you're if you're a teenager or college age, you have a question. What do you do? You look it up on Google. Look it up on Wikipedia. 
You know, do we treat the Bible analogously as primarily a source of information? If we have an answer to a religious question, say about the afterlife, well, we can look it up in the Bible. Um, and that's better than Google or Wikipedia. It's almost like, uh, it's almost like the Bible is a totally reliable source of information, as if Google and Wikipedia were, were, were without the, the disinformation and all the nonsense that uh, you can find online. Um, so, so the Bible is, a, is a, an inerrant, infallible source of information. And yes, it is that. But John is implying that it's more. John is implying that, the, the, that his letter is full of the, the living presence of Christ, that his letter is a portal into relationship, communion, fellowship with God. It's not simply information about God, it's access to the living presence of God himself. And for the Apostle John, in his letter, communion with God is an intensely intimate privilege, a highly personal privilege. He even uses the bold language um, that approaches the language of oneness with God. In uh, chapter 2, verse 24 of his letter, he says that if his message dwells in us, if we read, listen to, and internalize his message, then we will dwell in, that's the word he uses, in the Father and in the Son. And that language of indwelling God, this is, of course, very similar to what we read in John's Gospel, um, particularly chapter 14 of John's Gospel, and if you have your Bibles with you, I invite you to turn there. If not, uh, then I invite you simply to listen as I read you from John 14, starting at verse 15. Jesus said, If you love me, you will obey what I command, and I will ask the Father, and he will give you another counsellor, to be with you forever, the spirit of truth. The world cannot accept him because it neither sees him nor knows him. But you know him, for he lives with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Before long, the world will not see me anymore, but you will see me. Because I live, you also will live. And on that day, you will realize that I am in my Father, and you are in me, and I am in you. Whoever has my commands and obeys them, he is the one who loves me. He who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I too will love him and show myself to him. On regular Sundays at GBC, we are journeying through the letter to the Hebrews. And for me, two of the high points of the letter to the Hebrews are found in chapter 4 and chapter 10, where the writer images the incredible privilege 
of access to God that we have as Christians. And he images this, th- images this through the uh, analogy with the Old Testament sacred space that was known as the tabernacle or tent of meeting. Um, and it was where God was present with the Israelites during their trek from Egypt to the Promised Land. And it was a carefully designed tent with three zones. And the third zone is called the most holy place. And in that place was a a wooden box covered in gold, and in the box were the Ten Commandments written on tablets of stone. And only the high priest, representative of Israel, could go into that most holy place where God said, I will make myself known to you. Only the high priest had that privilege of access. And only once a year. But the message of Hebrews is that the Christian, by relationship to the great high priest, Jesus Christ, has access to that most intimate, sacred space. And when the high priest emerged from that encounter, he blessed Israel with what we might call a trace of that divine presence. Uh, The famous blessing from Numbers chapter 6, where the priests would say to Israel, the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord turn his face toward you and give you peace. The Lord's face shining upon us. The Lord turning his face toward us. That is the privilege intensified of everyone in the New Testament church. John writes his letter so that we may experience God's presence, this union with God. Um, And this union offers us fullness of joy. Um, If you you took a random opinion poll of a sample of the population and said, would you like more joy in your life or less? Probably everybody would say, well, well, more, of course. Um, uh, We all value moments of joy. C.S. Lewis wrote a great book called Surprised by Joy. Um, But psychologically, it's a mistake to seek joy directly. Joy is, so to speak, a byproduct, something else. Let's focus on on this word joy and and what it means. Um, I don't know about you, but I I love to hear Pastor Archie Moore pronounce the word joy. Because when you read it, it's a monosyllable, three letters, J-O-Y. But... Pastor Archie turns this monosyllable into a prolonged, enriched utterance. Joy. Um, in terms of uh, the, the word, uh, the meaning of the word joy in, in, in modern usage, um, uh, is my own definition. I think in, in modern usage, joy would be an intense, 
positive emotion that wells up, that surges up inside of us, an intense positive emotion that surges up inside of us. And the ancient Middle Eastern world uh, that surrounded Israel and the ancient Greek world that surrounded the church, uh, they had words for joy with a similar meaning, the intense positive emotion that wells up with, within us. Uh, in case you want to know, the Hebrew uh, word is simcha and the Greek word is kara. But the gist of them in the uh, ancient Middle East and in uh, Greek culture was the, uh, like our word joy, the intense positive emotion that upsurges within us. Now, what the Old Testament and New Testament writers did um, in many places was they took those ancient words, Hebrew and Greek, for joy, and they enriched their meaning with abundant connotation. Uh, very much like uh, Pastor Archie enriching the pronunciation of the word joy, turning it from a tiny monosyllable into a, a prolonged, enriched, joyful utterance, joy. For the Old Testament and New Testament writers, joy is the emotional reflex of the intensified presence of God. When God is present in a more intense manner, that triggers the upsurge of the intense positive emotion in the people of God. And a, a wonderful illustration of that is found in Psalm 98, which I would like to read from you. And I hope that as I read, you will uh, recognize the psalm from today's order of worship. Psalm 98. Sing to the Lord a new song, for he has done marvelous things. His right hand and his holy arm have worked salvation for him. The Lord has made his salvation known and revealed his righteousness to the nations. He has remembered his love and his faithfulness to the house of Israel. All the ends of the earth have seen the salvation of our God. Shout for joy to the Lord, all the earth. Burst into jubilant song with music. Make music to the Lord with the harp, with the harp and the sound of singing, with trumpets and the blast of the ram's horn. Shout for joy before the Lord, the King. Let the sea resound and everything in it, the world and all who live therein. Let the rivers clap their hands. Let the mountains sing together for joy. Let them sing before the Lord for he comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world in righteousness and the peoples with equity. See how joy there, um, even the, the, the rivers clapping their hands, um, is the emotional reflex of the advent of God as king. The presence of the divine king triggers the joy. And I think this is especially clearly seen in the New Testament in the infancy narratives of Jesus that occupy the first two chapters of Luke's Gospel. When John the Baptist's mother 
sorry, um, first I'll start with, with, the, 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 with John the Baptist himself. Um, John the Baptist, of course, was the forerunner of Messiah Jesus, and therefore, if the forerunner is being born, it means that the Messiah is near. And verse 14, therefore, says of chapter 1 of Luke, that talking about John the Baptist, he will be a joy and delight to you, his father, and many will rejoice because of his birth. Well, of course they will, because the forerunner of Messiah means that Messiah is near. So the natural emotional reflex is joy. Moving into to verse uh, 39. This is the encounter between the Virgin Mary and the mother of John the Baptist. At that time, Mary got ready and hurried to a town in the hill country of Judea, where she entered Zechariah's home and greeted Elizabeth, mother of John the Baptist. When Elizabeth heard Mary's greeting, the baby, John the Baptist, leaped in her womb. And Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit, and with a loud voice she exclaimed, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the child you will bear. But why am I so favoured that the mother of my Lord should come to me? As soon as the sound of your greeting reached my ears, the baby, John the Baptist, in my womb leaped for joy. Blessed is she who has believed that what the Lord has said to her will be accomplished. And then Mary said, the famous song, my soul glorifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God, my saviour. You see, they're, they're the pattern, the, uh, the uh, intensified presence of God triggers joy as the emotional reflex. And of course, uh, another scene well known from Christmas cards and nativity pageants, when the angels visit the shepherds outside of Bethlehem after Jesus has been born, what do the angels say? They declare good news of great joy, because unto you a saviour has been born. The Apostle John wrote his letter so that our joy may be full. And he rightly believed that that joy comes through communion with God. And so his letter functions as a, a portal, so to speak, to the joyful divine presence. My question for you, is that how you and I read our Bibles, as portal to the joyous divine presence? Or have we perhaps succumbed to the temptation of the digital age, the information age, and reduce the Bible to information? Now, I know that many of you 
do read scripture for intimate communion with God. But not everybody does. And just a, just a suggestion, those of you that are well-versed in the art of spiritual reading of Scripture, of reading Scripture to enter the presence of God, could you perhaps train others in that increasingly lost art? Maybe you could pray to God for him to connect you to someone who is open to learning the art of dwelling in the scripture, so dwelling in the word of Christ, so that Christ himself may dwell in us. Perhaps some of you haven't yet cultivated the, the, that art of spiritual reading. Um, and I understand that. Uh, maybe you'll say, well, I, I don't have time, and I, and I get that. Um, one of the, the curses of the digital age is how little time we seem to have, that the devices that are supposed to make our lives more convenient make us ever more busy. Uh, to the truth, I really do despise my iPhone. It's only a version 5, and I can't be bothered to upgrade, but I, it's, it's not why I despise it. I despise it because every week it tells me your screen time is down to two hours a day. And I think, I don't waste two hours a day on my phone. I'm, I'm old school. I, I read books. I'm a professor. I, I read books. I don't waste two hours. A, what, what am I doing on my phone? And I start thinking about it. Well, what, 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 what's on my phone? Text, uh, email, voicemail, barrage of communication, some of which I have to answer. Um, I ha if it's, uh, it's work-related, I, I have to answer it. And that's how the, the two hours uh, of, of digital time is, uh, is uh, squandered, so to speak. So, so I get you might say, well, I'm not, I'm not too, too, too busy. I don't read my Bible very much. And plus, I've never, I've, I've never really uh, developed this sense that when I open my Bible, it's a portal to the, the presence of Christ. Well, if, if, that, if that's where you are, may, may I may humbly make a suggestion to you? Uh, perhaps you could pray to God to guide you in this art of spiritual reading. Perhaps you could pray that maybe God will send you someone, a, a fellow believer, who can encourage you in the art of dwelling in the Word of God so that Christ himself may dwell in our hearts by faith. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, we pray. Amen. I invite you to join us in singing the hymn of response, Be Thou My Vision.